Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Creighton music professor, conductor, and chorus master, Dr. Baron Breland. In today's show, Breland talks about the choral ensembles he's engaged with, the art and craft of conducting, the joys and creative challenges of music for him and for us, and a life spent in and with music. The best lesson is that things only work when you're willing to sacrifice a little of yourself for the greater good of the whole. Sometimes I think choir is the absolute perfect microcosm for how society should work uh, because it only works when everybody is willing to just let go a little bit. Dr. A. Baron Breland has a diverse background in many different fields of music including the piano and saxophone, and is in demand throughout the Midwest and beyond as a conductor, chorus master, clinician, and adjudicator. He is Dean of the Graduate School and Vice Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Alongside his leadership of the Creighton University Chamber Choir, Breland is the principal conductor of Resonance, a semi-professional chorus whose debut album, Pilgrimage, was released in July 2020 on the MSR Classics label. Breland also is the Artistic Director of the River City Mix Chorus, and in his tenure with the organization, the ensemble has grown to over 160 active singing members. Baron Breland, welcome to Lives. Thank you for having me. Exciting to be here. So, how did music first appear in your life? What are your first recollections of it? It's a a really great question that I don't have a great answer to because I don't remember a time when music wasn't a part of my life. So I can't think of some seminal moment where I saw a concert or where I got to participate in something. I just have memories of it always being there. There was this uh, music camp that I used to go to in the summers when I was six or seven or eight. It was called Camp Sumatanga. And I don't remember if it was specifically music focused, but all of my activities there were. I had these fun classes that I would take. It's where even as a child, they would introduce you to conducting and little bits of music theory. So I remember that I took music classes there. I remember being a part of church choirs when I was little. Probably the most formal memory I have, my first sort of experience where I thought, wow, this is, might be something I want to do with the rest of my life is when... I was in the Atlanta Boy Choir um, when I was in sixth and seventh grade, right before my voice changed. And we got to perform Mahler's Eighth Symphony with Robert Shaw conducting. I didn't know at the time that that was a big deal. You know, I was just doing whatever they told me to do. But it was Mahler's Eighth, is, it's, it's known as the Symphony of a Thousand because you need tons and tons of singers. So it was all these choirs from all over the region down south. and. The Atlanta Boy Choir was the boy choir and huge, ginormous orchestra. And uh, I remember thinking, this is, this is incredible. I mean, this, this is something that wouldn't it be great to spend your life doing something like this. Did your family see something in you? Did you see something in yourself that compelled you or motivated you or maybe made you, um, your family made you be a part of 
the Atlanta Boys Choir or any of these other musical pursuits. I, I don't think many 12-year-olds land in a situation where they're experiencing something transcendent without some sort of nudge or context. I'm not sure if it was my mom's idea or if in singing in church choirs or school choirs, I do remember my elementary school choir director being a um, being a proponent of mine and and telling my parents that this might be something I was good at. Uh, and so I don't even know who set up the audition. Had to have been my mom. I'll have to thank her when I call her later tonight. Uh, so set up the audition for the Atlanta Boy Choir, and, and that's how I ended up there. And I think back now, now that I have my own kids, the amount of driving, we rehearsed three times a week, and we didn't live downtown Atlanta. We lived out in the suburbs. Uh, and so the commitment that my parents had to make for me to be a part of things like that, not to mention the financial commitment. We toured to Europe every year, you know, so I got to experience some really wonderful things there as well. But yeah, it's 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 pretty incredible. So there must have been some nudging from mom along the way. Who must have seen or at least heard from the teachers? Ma, I, I joke with her a lot. She is not a, she is a, an enthusiastic singer, but maybe not, a, well, I hope she doesn't listen to this. Maybe not the most gifted singer. My dad was the one that was always in the church choir. And so I'm not sure if she would have recognized the skills set in me. But uh, And she had, she and her, all of my aunts and uncles had been forced into piano lessons when they were little. And she wasn't going to do that to me. So I actually didn't take piano at a young age. It wasn't until I chose to take piano around that same time around middle school where I thought this is something I might want to dive into and try. So what was your family context like then? You know, what was a typical week like for you? Uh, what was the nature of your um, family environment? At first, so when I was super young, we moved around uh, a good amount, not necessarily out of the South where I'm from. I was born in Alabama. Um, but we did end up moving through my mom's work a few times and switching houses in various cities and uh, and then work took her eventually uh, to the outside of Atlanta. So it was right before fourth grade that I moved into the house that I would consider my childhood home, even though I was already nine at that point. But that's where I spent all middle school and all of high school years until I went to college was uh, in that house. And my parents were heavily involved in the church, the Methodist church growing up. So I was heavily involved in the church. I grew up uh, singing in, in church choir. I even joined the adult choir as a youth to be with my dad uh, who sang in the choir. Uh, once I started piano lessons, the, the music life at church was kind of my central place to be. I, my piano teacher was also the church pianist. Uh, Wednesday nights were spent there, which is when choir rehearsed and youth choir was on a different night and, and then our regular youth services and Sunday tradition. But uh, it was a lot of my upbringing and family life was centered around the church. I'm getting a sense of the musical exposure and experience and performances that you had so far, it sounds quite classical, some of it uh, spiritual because of the nature of the church environment. Mm -hmm. How much pop or contemporary music or you just playing around, I don't know, even singing punk or something, how, how much other music was there yeah. in your early life? I, what's kind of neat about this, and my brother is also actually a very gifted musician. He doesn't read music at all, but he has an incredible voice. And he was the one that in high school was actually in musicals. I was not in musicals, I was a band guy. So I was always playing the saxophone and I'm marching band and being a drum major. 
And so a lot of my earliest not church or classical-based musical recollections are what he was listening to in his room. Uh, and so he was a, a huge fan of, at the time, it was Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis. They played those all the time. And that sort of started to seep in. And then I loved Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis. Uh, and it didn't occur to me until I was a grown-up that his love for Billy Joel and Elton John became my love for Billy Joel and Elton John, because that's what I heard through the bedroom walls, you know, we down the hallway. So I probably owe a lot of Billy Joel. If you ask me today, I would say was 100% my favorite singer songwriter of all time. And that's kind of interesting now that I think about it. That it started from my older brother. I also do have one faint memory that just popped into my mind of sitting and waiting on him to get out of school in the car with my mom. Uh, and Crystal Gale's Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue was playing. So there has to be some country roots that are sort of blossoming in the background as well. But I never met a kind of music I didn't like. Do you, I don't know if you remember, they had these CD services that used to get like nine CDs for a penny when you joined the subscription and then you would get more. And I mine were all different types. There was uh, some contemporary Christian, there was some country, there was some classical, there was always a hodgepodge, whatever the top 40 was, because you can't be a youth in America and go to high school anywhere without hearing that through all your friends. So yeah, I've, I've always loved all types as far as I can remember. So at the Breland household now, uh, if you're not preparing for a performance uh, that's coming up, what are you singing in the shower? Well, that's a Excellent question. So now with Alexa, because she'll play not only whatever I want, uh, but she'll also, you know, make a whole playlist out of it. I went through a phase, probably the first year out of the pandemic, where every night when I was cooking dinner, I was listening to the soundtrack of Dear Evan Hansen. I, I was there was a lot of musical theater going on. Uh, now and I also I like to let sort of the feeling of the times dictate what I'm going to listen to. So when Tina Turner passed, there was a solid two or three weeks of Tina Turner and like music. When it's not something specific like that, uh, Dolly Parton is a huge influence on me. The Indigo Girls, uh, we got I got to finally check off a bucket list and see them live here in Omaha um, just a few months ago. Uh, so it's there's a little mix of folk, but it's it's generally older. Uh, as I'm preparing for concerts, even if I'm not listening to the music of that concert, I, I do like to sort of get in the world a little bit. So River City did a 70s concert, and, and so there was a lot of 70s music blaring through the house. The kids, it's amazing now thinking about how my parents and brother might have influenced me. My kids now will pick these random country songs and ask Alexa to play that I'm not, I didn't know they were listening to, you know, but they just heard, they heard it on the, on the stream. So already I'm sitting here and I'm feeling enlivened just hearing not only this breadth of music that you're sharing with us, but also there's something about music that is you, say, mention a name like Elton John or you mention a musical like Les Mis and, and those parts of my brain are lighting up and firing too. And so I'm feeling this sense of uh, uh, aliveness and also a, a, a degree of playfulness and joy and so I want to follow that a little bit with you. You know, what is it about music that for you personally, and perhaps for a second question, the community or people at large, th that is so compulsive, so intrinsic and visceral? What is so joyful for you in music? It depends on the kind of music, what really sparks joy for me. So if I'm thinking about my country roots, what I think about is the storytelling. I think 
the way country does different from most pop, and Taylor Swift is that perfect sort of crossover. But this idea that you're actually telling a story and there might be a lesson in there or there's pain in there or there's joy in there. When it's classical music, what brings me joy is sort of the recognition of the expertise and artistry that goes into doing the appreciation that someone can actually make those noises with that instrument or with their voice in the same way a pro athlete when you see an incredible play and you're you're just happy for that person that the human body accomplished such a thing that's that's the joy in classical music in community music making especially with an ensemble like the river city mix chorus it is the idea that this music has been crafted to give voice to things that perhaps members of the community couldn't give voice to themselves or couldn't do it as powerfully on their own. And so this idea of bringing multiple people together around this message that somehow amplifies it in a really beautiful way. There's all sorts of studies about choral singing, about what it does to uh, the bodies in the room, how heartbeats will start to line up, how breathing starts to line up. And because you're doing regularized breathing, anxiety levels go down. And probably because no one's done this sort of a study, but I predict that it's the venting of emotions. It's the releasing of pent up, whatever it is, joy or grief or um, desire that also is just mentally healthy and emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy. And to get to experience that in community with other people who are going through at the same, the same time, there's, there's joy there. There are, I can't tell you how many times I'm in the middle of a rehearsal on a Monday night with River City Mix Chorus and hearing something that finally clicks into place or a unified vowel even, or when you recognize that the choir has gone beyond singing the right note and the right rhythm and actually has meaning or intention behind the word that they're singing, a smile will pop onto my face without, I don't have to force it. I don't have to, I don't have to put on anything to, you know, to show them my gratitude. It's just, it erupts on my face. I'm curious now then about the curation of music for audiences. I would imagine that you sometimes think that you want to pick a certain kind of music or a certain piece or genre, not necessarily because of its intrinsic appeal, but I, I do wonder if you do pick pieces or conduct pieces in a certain way because you want to get a certain message across or feeling across to the listener. Yes, uh, and so programming is another topic you could just talk about forever. And it's different based on the ensemble. There's different types of, of reasons why you might craft a program in a certain way. Um, and sort of sad but true, of course, is the external forces of the market are always in the background swimming because you never want to program a concert that people aren't either going to pay for right at that moment or build a relationship that they're going to want to come back to the next concert and the next concert. So that's always sort of swimming in the background that's just as reality. But with River City, that particular ensemble exists so that its presence itself is protest. And that sort of mission-based work infects the programming as well. 
So not only do I want to come, do, do I want people to come to the concert and to see a program, to see a stage full of queer people and their allies singing beautifully, but I also want them to leave not only having been exposed to the mere idea of queer people, but that ultimately when you strip all of the nonsense in society about politics and religions away. It's just about love, and it's just about human connection, and it's just about being kind to other people, and it's just about treating people the way that you would have them be treated. So I absolutely curate those particular programs, wanting the audience to leave with what seems like basic universal acceptance language, but still sometimes just needs reinforced. And a lot of times you can pick music that isn't overt about it, but certainly it'll seep in through the messaging. Why don't we then pivot a little bit to talk about some of the choruses that you are involved okay. with, and, and let's start with River City yep. Mixed Chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were just describing a little bit about the intention, the mission behind that chorus. But let's back up just a little bit. Would, would you share a little bit more about what, what is this chorus? Who's it made up of? When do they perform? What do they perform? Sure. So River City Mix Chorus is a 160-member community chorus based in Omaha, Nebraska. It is comprised entirely of queer people and their allies. Uh, when people come to audition, if they didn't know it, when they when they were just Googling community choruses and saw River City Mix Chorus, they certainly leave the audition understanding what the chorus is really about, uh, a, music, uh, a musical ensemble that exists to bring communities together. Um, They rehearse once a week, uh, usually give, this is in transition, I almost said two concerts a year, but this is our 40th anniversary season. We're doing four concerts this year. Technically, we're doing five. Technically, we're doing six. If you keep adding in all these other special things that we're doing. So we're expanding and growing uh, in our mission. They've been around, like I mentioned, for 40 uh, years. So at this point, uh, the membership and the budgets have grown to such a place where we're performing at the Orpheum, we're performing at the Holland Performing Arts Center. And it's a far cry from its roots, uh, which its initial performances were at the Max. So the Max also opened in 1984 when River City Mixed Chorus started. Uh, and then nine or 10 people, depending on which variation of the story of the, the mythology of the origins of River City Mixed Chorus, whichever version you go with, performed there uh, at the Max. And then local churches, especially Metropolitan Community Church, used to be a home. Um, and it's just expanded and expanded and expanded since then. It's uh, a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, so its funding is primarily based on grants, on personal donations, on corporate donors. The ticket sales, the concerts themselves are at a best break even, you know, because the Holland and the or- Orpheum are, are pricey venues. Uh, and that's okay. People are, are proud to support the mission. Um, it's sort of incredible, uh, the growth that the ensemble has had over the last decade. Just won the Nebraska Arts Council, uh, the State Arts Award for Organizational Achievement, which we're super proud about, uh, that we're getting some recognition around the region. We performed uh, at the Iowa Choral Directors Association Conference a couple of years ago because they heard about not only the choir, uh, but the commissioned piece that we were doing that was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. Uh, and they wanted to sort of center that and feature that at their conference. So it's the course is also part of an umbrella organization called Gala Choruses. That's Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses. And these choirs started to spring up 
40, 45 years ago, sometimes 50 years ago, in the case of some of the feminist courses, around the social movements of the 60s, where like-minded people were starting to bond together. Then with the assassination, the assassination of Harvey Milk, uh, even more need uh, as uh, some of the gay rights bills were making their way in, in California. So all the larger metros around uh, the country started to to form these choruses. And so this umbrella organization called Gala Choruses exists to sort of support them and to help them flourish. Uh, River City uh, actually began because a few people went to see the Twin City Gay Men's Chorus in Des Moines. Uh, and so some friends just got in a van, drove to Des Moines to watch this course and said, we got to start something like that here uh, in Nebraska. And what's interesting about River City versus some of the other big gala choruses is, is that they didn't start as a single gender chorus. They've always been mixed and intentionally so. Even uh, in the earliest formation, uh, iterations of the chorus, there was something like nine tenors and basses and only one soprano and alto. And they could have at any point said, let's just make this a gay men's chorus and move on. But uh, there was something about the inclusivity, about bringing everybody to the table, uh, looking out for everybody. One of our taglines now is standing for many, singing as one. So if, if some particular subgroup of the queer community is, is under attack or needs support, River City is going to be there for everybody. So it's, I, I call it the most quintessential Nebraska nice course around because what's more Nebraska nice than bringing everybody to the table? So it's a beautiful organization. Uh, it's had some incredible uh, directors in the past. It's had some incredible performances and some collaborations with even such groups as the Omaha Symphony, uh, Omaha Performing Arts. So it's, uh, I could not be more proud to be associated with it. I want to come back to that last mm -hmm. point in a second, but you mentioned that the River City Mixed Chorus, its existence is a form of protest. Mm. What What is the feeling within the chorus about its presence, its statement, and perhaps the fact that it maybe many people don't actually want it to be a statement as much as they just want to be joyful in terms of singing? That last question is actually really interesting. Um, because some people j just want a safe space on Monday night to come and make music with like-minded people and aren't necessarily ready to be an activist, uh, which it's not necessarily an activist chorus, but it's a chorus whose music is a form of activism. In 2015, when marriage equality passed, right, and then we were all of a sudden thinking, well, clearly, you know, we're all squared away and done. Life is beautiful. But that was really just from a cisgender perspective, because the trans community never has not yet felt like they've fully achieved equality in our country. And so River City never sort of gave up the idea that there was still a, a very strong need for us to be together, to sing together, to keep our music going. Uh, and then, of course, living in a, a state whose politics has not always been as friendly to the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, we also never let our guard down uh, because of that. And while Omaha sometimes can feel like sort of a, a safe oasis, even post the 2016 election, there's just been little incident after little incident after little incident that still sort of drives this need for us to be together in large numbers in safety. Uh, and, and singing is the best way to do that. There was even 
brief sort of discussion when we won this Nebraska State Arts Award, how involved the Nebraska government was going to be because uh, our governor had just released a statement about the transgender community and and what defined man and what defined woman, which is he has a different philosophy, perhaps, than some of our singing members. Uh, and so there was even discussion, well, how involved would we be? But ultimately, we earned that achievement, regardless of who was the government, right? We, we have organized and we have built and we have sung and we have worked for 40 years. So uh, that recognition is going to be ours and we're not going to let any particular spin of political party in office sort of diminish that achievement for us. Why does this particular course matter to you so much? This is where I don't know if you've got tissues around because I could, I I am known for tearing up. Uh, every singer that ever sings with me will make fun of me because I cry. But whenever I'm earnest, I cry. There's something about frank realness that triggers my eyeballs. Uh, personally, I come from a family, my beautiful family, uh, down south, where a particular branch of it does not speak to me anymore. And the idea that I can still come together with people on a Monday night and do what I've been trained to do, which is choral music, but also bend that expertise towards a mission that is super meaningful for me personally is very rewarding. Um, and knowing that some of the singers in the ensemble perhaps have experienced that same type of ostracization from key members of their family uh, and that they, especially the younger ones, get to see older ones who have survived that kind of a trauma and who have maybe even thrived and maybe even used it, you know, as terrible as it was for some really great lessons in resiliency or perseverance. Um, so combining that type of mission with what I do feel like I'm also pretty good at, which is choral music, uh, is, is just, it's ultimately fulfilling. So let's turn to another course that mm -hmm. you are deeply passionate about and creatively invested in, which is resonance. Mm -hmm. Could you just share a little bit more about the genesis of that chorus and, and, and what it is? So Resonance is a semi-professional chorus. Um, so most of its singers uh, have day jobs of varying types, but the large portion of them also have advanced music degrees. Um, so some of their day jobs are, in fact, college voice instructors or artist administrators or um, music educators in the public or private school system. Uh, so they have these regular day jobs, but they're also incredible vocal artists as well. Uh, and so the difference in, in resonance and a lot of other choirs around is that they actually will get some sort of compensation with every performance. So the entire business model and budgeting model is, is different. Uh, to have resonance come is a more expensive sort of endeavor for any organization that wants them because they're going to divvy out that money to the singers to actually get a little uh, to get a little something for their work because they are a, a good number of them working musicians even if they're not working as full-time performers um, 
they started as uh, a trio of uh, singers from that were had worked together a lot in the Opera Omaha choruses, uh, and they. You know, there's a lot of downtime when you're uh, in a, a chorus member in opera because there's lots of scenes that you're not in, uh, and so you get to sit around in the dressing rooms and talk and dream and and ideate. Uh, and so they thought, what if we had this vocal ensemble that could do it all, that could uh, be the core for the Omaha Symphony when they want to perform a Stravinsky Mass or do our own musical or. Uh, get hired out for weddings and funerals in various sizes because you, we, we, they just have this stable. So they came up with this idea of resonance. Uh, Tara Coward is the founder uh, and executive director, and she was one of those three singers. She has worked in tons of arts organizations around town and has a, a connection with Ernest Richardson because she's his wife, uh, who is one of the, of the conductors of the Omaha Symphony. So with their networks, you know, these this group of singers uh, formed together. Um, and it's a sort of a different joy, right? It's a different type of joy. It's a it's a it's a, a high level artistic type of joy that getting to do music that even the collegiate choirs at Creighton when I was the choir director there uh, couldn't necessarily achieve because these are all generally master's level um, singers. So they perform almost the same sort of variety of venues, but the music scope is 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 phenomenal. They've done um, they've done a song from The Greatest Showman at uh, the Gallup Clifton Strengths you know annual conference, but they've also. Uh, done the Mozart C minor Mass with the Steamboat Symphony Orchestra in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. So it's just such a huge range. Uh, and they're known for that wide range. So regardless of the type of music you want, regardless of the venue uh, that you that you need, uh, they're gonna they're gonna cobble together uh, a cadre of singers that are that are gonna make it work. There's something on the website declaring a, a belief, a principle of the organization. And that is that the ensemble believes that all vocal and choral music is at its heart about sharing stories. And you suggested that earlier when you you talked about, for example, your country roots and you talked about Taylor Swift and, Mm -hmm. and others. And so I love this idea of a broad spectrum of genres and types of vocal music. I have to say, it isn't the first thing I thought about when I thought about choral music. In other words, it being a way to share stories. That's really what it's about. What is it about stories that is so intrinsically at the heart of vocal and choral music? Yeah, when I think about, at some point in my life, I had to make a decision, and I don't know that it was a conscious decision that I made, uh, but I went into college as a sax player, as piano player, and as somewhat of a singer. Uh, and. I chose piano as my primary instrument because I didn't know what type of music education I was going to be involved in. Uh, so it left me sort of the window to go vocal or to go instrumental. Uh, and in my first semester uh, at the University of Georgia, I was in the men's glee club. And that was another sort of life-changing moment. The idea, music is music. Music is beautiful. Music, Instrumental music tells a message all its own. But when you add text to it, I think it's why singers want to be singers as opposed to another kind of musician is because it comes with text. The text is critical. Your voice teacher in any 
college worth its salt is going to have you first recite the text, get intimately involved with the poetry uh, to the point where they may make you just recite it as poem or uh, recite the narrative as dramatic monologue. That's going to be a part of your training before you even open your mouth to make a note. You have to explore the text. You have to scan it. You have to do some formal breakdown of it. So I think singers force singers who find themselves, I, whether they thought about it or not, they found joy in text. Uh, and so resonance, it doesn't matter what the text is. It doesn't matter if you personally believe it. It's the idea that there is a belief for someone to have that is a, a beautiful calling. Uh, and they're going to share that story in, in, a, in a beautiful way. And some people like to think of, for example, musicals, musical theater itself. Um, the non-musical, just dramatic part of it, there's just oftentimes just acting. And then when the, when the narrative or when the story has progressed to the point where the drama can't be contained by just words, they add a song. And so it's elevated this sort of attention. And then, of course, the dancers will show up and say, and then, of course, when you can't sing anymore because you don't have the words for it, then you dance. But I think there is that sort of feeling that song has somehow elevated both music and text and combined it in this beautiful way. So I, I don't know that singers make a conscious choice about it. I just think they know that they love sharing the stories. It is night and day when a choir especially is just going through the motions and just singing syllable to syllable. It happens a lot in foreign languages when they're not as intimately involved in the meaning. Uh, so they'll be singing. Uh, I'm working right now on the Brahms Requiem uh, with some local high schools to sing with the Omaha Symphony. Uh, and they're just singing the correct German sounds at the correct time on the correct pitch, and it still doesn't sound like music. And when you remind them of what that phrase means and what that word means and what the climax of that phrase means, it is like a light switch has come on and all of a sudden music existed where it was just organized sound before. It could have been the most in tune, the most uh, blended vowel, uh, but it had no meaning. There is that extra layer uh, and it's perceptible. That's the crazy part. It's palpable when music has meaning behind it. I do have to ask, uh, you talked about the progression uh, through the text and uh, singing, telling story, but you also mentioned dance. Please tell me that you dance too. I do not dance. I, you know, uh, I dance with my children. Uh, so my four-year-old and my six-year-old will shake a tail feather to whatever is uh, playing on Alexa in my kitchen. I did uh, one time, one time, because my piano lessons when I first started uh, down south happened to be at a ballet studio. Uh, and this ballet studio was performing a, a, the nativity through ballet. But the class had only girls. Uh, and so they looked for some poor sucker who was taking piano lessons to be a boy to play, jo to play Joseph. Uh, and I naively said, of course I would. And then once they, they sort of tried to teach me the dance, they thought, huh, okay. So they just basically had me walk Mary onto the stage. Mary did her thing, and then I walked her off. But I can say I have officially been in a ballet before. <laughs> I have forgotten that story. Boy, that's a memory I have buried. Well, it's the same that we are, each and every one of us, singers. It's just a question of... The, the perfection of that. Hmm. But, but we all sing happy birthday to each other, sure. I'm sure. So we're, they're, they're, we're all singers. Dancing's the same. Hmm. Uh, Resonance also recently 
debuted an album mm. uh, called Pilgrimage. Yeah. Would you share just a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it had been uh, a plan in the works with a series of concerts when we first started going to Steamboat Springs. We performed a couple times there with their symphony orchestra and just in solo concerts. Um, and we had crafted this idea around recording this album. And at its basic, the theme was, you know, taking a trip which we were doing. We were going to Steamboat Springs. And so I started to theme music around that. But then, of course, I overthink everything. And we started thinking about, well, taking a trip, that could be all kinds of metaphors. And that could be death itself. Uh, and I had always wanted to do the Howell's Requiem. And so we centered this concert and what would then be the album, Pilgrimage, around the Howell's Requiem. It's this incredible uh, piece of British uh, choral music, this acapella number that is intensely personal for the composer, Herbert Howells. Um, and so we got it all together. We recorded it in St. John's and then sort of hit a little bit of a lull in funding and in finishing uh, and without derailing the entire conversation into the pandemic, 2020 actually allowed us a little bit of space and freedom to get it over the finish line because we weren't also dealing with a million other concerts and things. So uh, it came out uh, in the middle of the shutdowns, basically, is when it kind of happened. Um, it's a beautiful little nugget. It's got all kinds of uh, not only this Howell's Requiem, but it's got um, Down to the River to Pray, a little bit of a choral take on a bluesy country number. It's got a little bit of a spiritual uh, in there. It's, it's a it's got a Nebraska composer um, from Wahoo, uh, Hanson. That's, a, um, what was the song? It's a Prayer for the Middle Ages uh, by Howard Hanson. It's a, it's a beautiful little album. I'm probably going to spend the next few minutes indulging all of the ignorance that I contain about what conducting mm. is. Um, because I, I've seen various conductors and for the life of me, I can't quite tell what's the consistency in, in how conductors express themselves. But I know there's a language in there somewhere that I'm just not initiated to. And so I want to explore conducting with okay. you a little bit. So could you just tell me a little bit about what is a conductor doing? Okay. So at its core, there are... Music is broken down into what we call measures or bars. So all music is organized by meter. Uh, and that the main meters are duple, triple, and quadruple. So you're either in some form of a two feel, like a march, like a Sousa march. Dun, 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 dun. One, two, one, two, because we have two feet. Or you're dancing in three. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. The Star Swing on Banner, for example, is in uh, three, four. Oh, oh, say, can you? One, two, three, one. So that breaks down into sets of three. Four, four is the m most common one, so quadruple. So this would be God Save the Queen, for example, would be in a nice 4-4, uh, Ode to Joy. Every, any song you can think of is probably in 4-4. Four, four. So what conducting is, is just showing the ensemble where you are in that meter. So for 4-4, four, four, it's floor, door, wall, ceiling, floor, door, wall, ceiling. So I'm always showing beat one, beat two, beat three, beat four with your dominant hand. Usually it's right-handed. Uh, 
that there's a big controversy about left-handed conductors. It's a whole thing. Um, but usually the right hand is showing that. Or if you're in 3-4 or if you're in 2-4. Now, some people are better at clarity than others. So perhaps if you've seen some wildly gesticulating conductors, they might not be the most clear for the ensemble. But So that's what your right hand is doing. And your left hand is doing everything else. So your left hand is generally showing expression. So you're getting louder, you're getting softer. For choirs especially, they like to know where the release is so they can line their consonants up together. Um, and then in the midst of both those hands, you're also trying to inspire. So you're trying to take an ensemble beyond just putting the right note at the right time, but is there something magical happening in live performance? And if you're good, then there is something magical happening in live performance. And so that's where you also are just trying to emote and inspire. And of course, there's always a little element of showmanship. So you never know who's taking a picture when. So you're also trying to figure out where that perfect gesture is that's going to catch the camera, and then you're going to be in the newspaper, you know, with this beautiful form. How much of your conducting in that context isn't for the ensemble, but it's actually for the audience behind you? That's a great question. And I think that a lot of that is about... For River City, they, as a community chorus that is memorized, because I find that to be a better way to tell a story, is without the folder in front of you. Uh, because it's necessarily not trained musicians, I would say 99% of what I'm doing is to make sure that they feel comfortable with what they are doing. The right word at the right time in the right place, I'm just... I, I'm. I'm trying to be the best traffic cop that I can be. When I know things are going super well, the other 1%, I would say, this piece is cooking along. They don't need my help right here. You know what the audience needs? The audience needs to know that we're all having fun. And so that's the moment where I'll sort of break out a little bit, maybe dance a little more than I would or that my teacher would ever allow me to do on a podium uh, in grad school, uh, and maybe throw in a cutoff that has a little more flair you know, than, than ordinarily. But I would say the vast majority, the lion's share is just, because you never want to sacrifice the integrity of the concert or the integrity of the music or the break up the story by screwing up, you know, because you're trying to show off for the audience. So that's, that's only a small fraction. But I would, I would challenge any conductor that says they don't do it because I think they do. So far, you've made this sound not predictable, but but there's there's a language and a structure, almost a mathematics to this. Yep. And so it's got me wondering, why aren't more people that can read music, that have a musical talent, why aren't there more conductors? So that comes down to what you see is the culmination of months and months of work. So the conducting of the performance is just the pinnacle, right, of the mountaintop. So why more people don't do it is because of the months leading up to the concert. For River City, months. For professional organizations, three or four rehearsals, however many rehearsals it takes. Uh, and that's the part that will trip up somebody that might have a beautiful gesture, that might be you know, great to look at you know, from the audience, but they're not great at bringing people together around a common vision for what the concert's gonna be, for how the music's gonna go. Um, they may not have clarified themselves. So maybe it's not that they're not good at translating their message, but maybe they haven't done enough 
pre-thinking or forethought about the project to know what that message is going to be, how this piece is going to go. Uh, score study is a critical part, and it's days and weeks and hours and hours and hours of making sure that of everybody on stage, the conductor is the one that knows the music the most intimately, inside and out. You never want to be the least informed. You never want to be the second most informed because somebody's going to ask you a question and the conductor is the source of truth. So the hours of prep that goes into that, then the hours of actually rehearsing to making sure that your vision is coming to life. Uh, and then you get to celebrate, you know, with that 1% of the concert where you where you throw in the extra something something. You talked earlier about there's the mechanics of conducting and that's great. But there is the hair raising on the back of the neck moment that comes from something almost ineffable about this music. And it's the conductor's job to get that inspiration into the ensemble or, or the, um, the orchestra and to pull that through them, pull the music out so that there is this almost transcendent feeling happening because of the music. That seems to be the magic. Mm. How, how do you do that? And that a lot of that is also dependent on the audience. And it's also dependent on the time of day. And it also de- is dependent on uh, the general vibe of society. But the audience, it's a little bit like stand-up. Uh, if the conductor can feel how the audience is feeling, then they are pretty good at also pacing something in a really beautiful way and in a meaningful way. Um, the kind of music and the kind of concert has so much to do with it as well. So it's, it's, it's different for every single live performance event. But there is something about live performance where a conductor, and a, it's also a place, a conductor has to leave their own junk off stage, so it could be that you had a flat tire on the way to the concert, or your tuxedo popped a button, or something much more serious happened you know, on the way to a concert, and you still have to walk out onto stage. And if the story is about Israel and Egypt, or and the Handel Oratorio, you have to be able to get that story going and start it in a in a in a meaningful way. I have found that my ability to breathe any kind of life or magic or goosebumps into a concert has come more and more with experience. Because at the beginning of my career, I was everything, I was nervous about everything. I was a, I was a terrible piano recitalist because I would get so nervous that you know my legs would shake underneath the piano keyboard. And my first couple times conducting, I mean, I would, I was, hundred percent sure that the audience could see my hands. They either, they couldn't, or they were very kind and light and said they couldn't see my hands shaking. Um, but I, I know the choir could, you know, some of the singers would be like, oh, oh, I was afraid you weren't going to get it through it. Your hands were shaking. And then over the years, the more and more you do it, the more you feel like you have control of your own sort of anatomy. Uh, but then you can really take a pause and you can feel the moment in the room and you can start a piece and you can end a piece and you know how long to leave your hands up how much space there needs to be before the applause can start. If you're doing multi-movement works, you can feel when has the audience had enough time to just settle from what happened and move on to the next thing. You can really control the pacing. If there's a grand uh, crescendo or accelerando in a piece, you start to feel how that's supposed to go in the space, but it only comes with doing it a million times. 
you've been formally, informally too, throughout your life, but you've been formally educated in music, mm -hmm. in conducting, being yep. a chorus master, playing, singing, and you too have taught as well. So taking both of those individually, what has been the best lesson that you still lean on in terms of what you have been taught as a musical performer or conductor? My first instinct to answer your question was actually not about music at all. That the best lesson is that things only work when you're willing to sacrifice a little of yourself for the greater good of the whole. Sometimes I think choir is the absolute perfect microcosm for how society should work uh, because it only works when everybody is willing to just let go a little bit. You might like to sing an ah vowel this way and your neighbor might like to sing it this way, but choral music only works when you both sing the same ah. That's when it's, it's most beautiful. Now, do you need somebody to tell you eventually, you know, which ah to sing? Yes. And so everyone agrees they're going to trust this one person and they're all going to come together around a common vision. Not that I don't appreciate solo singing. I, I, I do. But it's not my favorite to work with. Uh, and, and singers especially because their body is their instrument. So to criticize at all their solo singing, it's as if you're criticizing their personhood themselves, right? It, it's very personal. That's sort of a, an area of landmines I don't even like to deal with because where I find the most beauty is when people themselves come together uh, and to create something more beautiful. So I, I don't know if that's exactly the answer you were looking for, but this this idea of of just sacrificing yourself for the greater good it, it feels like the most important lesson to me. I think about in grad school, you know, you're very focused on you. You're very focused, is my gesture right? It's competitive in a way. Uh, did I do the best rehearsal? Did my choir sound the best? Whose orchestra, um, you know, likes them more? But the most meaningful parts of grad school were actually where students supported each other, where, oh, you know what? I'm gonna shut my rehearsal down an extra five minutes so that we can move chairs around for your rehearsal. And it's the music bring community music making brings people together in a really beautiful way. I think choir is is the best lesson in life. It to transfer to my new day job as a dean, as an administrator in higher education. I feel like my skills as a conductor have actually been super helpful because I often have parties with various viewpoints, uh, and I have to be an arbiter of right and wrong and not everybody's going to be happy but they have to be able to trust that my way is a way and is the right way at the time for them and it's the same way as a conductor so you may think the conductor's making a terrible choice to cut off a note that short you know when it should be longer but you trust that person enough after years of working with them that you're going to you know dive in and and follow their vision and so i feel like a leader in the academy is the same way varying viewpoints strong viewpoints and they're all right because they are all also experts so working with faculty they're all the experts in their field and they know how their curriculum should be but their curriculum path and they want to do a dual degree with this curriculum path who has very different thoughts and you have to be the arbiter in the middle so uh, conducting has sort of offered me a little bit of those skill sets is there something aspirational ahead of you? So by that, 
question I'm wondering, you've covered so much ground in our conversation in terms of musical breadth and the kinds of work that you do. Is there some golden dream, some aspiration that you just really want to be a part of your future? Yeah, I. that's a really great question. And again, we could spend hours on the pandemic, right? And not only what it did to ensembles, but lives, you know, how if you were fortunate enough to not have anybody super sick or pass on, it was a it was a reshifting moment for everybody. But right before the pandemic, uh, we had just done in 2019, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and Chichester Psalms, uh, the Omaha Symphony performed those and I got to be the course master for that. Um, that was at that time the pinnacle. I I couldn't think of doing anything greater than Beethoven's Ninth except for one piece. And that one piece uh, was Mahler's Eighth Symphony, the one I was talking about when I was eight years old and I got to perform with Robert Shaw because it's probably the largest choral orchestral masterwork uh, that one could do, maybe besides Britain's War Requiem. But it's a dream piece of mine to be able to be the chorus master for Mahler's Eighth. So after the success of Beethoven's Ninth and Chichester Psalms, I was slated to do Mahler's Third that next season and then had had very beginning conversations with the Omaha Symphony about doing a performance of Mahler's Eighth Symphony for Thomas Wilkins' final season. It was going to be the 100th anniversary of the symphony. Uh, it was going to be his final season. It was going to end with this grand shebang, and I was going to get to do, be the course master uh, for Mahler's Eighth, which for me was almost where it all started, you know, so it's sort of full circle, just an, an incredible appreciation and astonishment at, at the gifts my life has given me. And then the pandemic happened. Uh, and coming out of the pandemic, choral music itself was so slow to regroup because it's still in the eyes of many, a little bit unsafe to make that many aerosols in group settings with that many people. Uh, River City, it still has some very strict uh, vaccine protocols and guest, no guest policy, et cetera. Uh, so if I were to check something else off my bucket list, it would be that the, the, the momentum starts building again for something like that. It hasn't been revisited. I mean, the, the symphony hasn't really programmed any large choral orchestra masterworks outside the choral collaborative uh, since since pre-pandemic so and of course because it's it's logistically challenging to get all those choirs together but it's also we just haven't had we haven't had the, quite the return uh to that type of music being regularly programmed yet so getting to be a course master for Mahler's eighth that or britain's war requiem either one of those that i think that would be that would be an incredible thing for me i just want to close then by going back, we've moved around this circle and you just mentioned where it all started, Marla's Eighth, the Atlanta Boys Choir. You also talked about growing up in the church, singing in the Methodist mm. choir. I don't know the degree to which a religious tradition or practice is still a part of your life. I'm curious how faith and its practice exists in your world now, but also the degree to which you 
embrace music and the work you do with it as a form of sacred or spiritual, um, more than vocation, perhaps even more than calling, but something that for you is spiritually transcendent? When I am stressed, when I am feeling overwhelmed, when the nitty gritty logistical detail work of either my day job or still my night work as a, as a conductor feel like they're too much. My go-to thing is to sit down at the piano and play these arrangements of old hymns that I've kept over the years, this collection of music that I've had since high school. They're all Christian hymns and praise songs that are arranged by Mark Hayes, uh, who's a famous uh, arranger and, con and composer. But there is something releasing about that. There is something home about that music. So it's very clear that as my body and mind were developing as I was growing up, that these seeds of this type of music were planted somewhere within me because nothing feels more right to me musically than this, the, than these old church songs and, and hymns. So I, I do know that that is where that is where home or peace are for me is in that type of music. And in terms of my own faith, we've just started going back uh, to church. Both my husband and I had taken a break uh, from church for lots of various reasons that, again, can be the subject of an entirely other podcast. Um, but we've started going to Countryside United Community Church, uh, no, United Church of Christ, sorry, Countryside Community Church, which is a UCC, United Church of Christ. And this idea that my family, in its iteration with my husband and my two children, are just as welcome and valid and worthy and loved and a part of a community as any other family that walks in the door of any size or any number of parents or any race, religion, creed, it was such a, a beautiful moment for us because that, like I mentioned musically, the church is a part of me, was inside of me, right? That is just a, a way of my being. The music was and being able to worship means a lot. I also... What I've learned a lot being at a Jesuit university, this belief that seeking God happens in all things. So in performing music, in creating music, you are seeking and finding God. The creation of anything is by virtue God's creation, uh, which is a beautiful way to to view the work that I get to do. So making music is in essence giving voice to something inside the human soul that needs to commune with God. It's a delight to be able to do it in whatever venue, in whatever forum. It is spiritually satisfying. It's a, it's a rewarding lifestyle. My guest today has been music professor, conductor, and chorus master, Dr. Baron Breland. Baron, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. 
Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.